You may be seated as I introduce our preacher this morning. Come on out here, Sam. It's my pleasure to introduce Sam Garrison. Of course, many of you know Sam. He is a longtime leader in this church, a vestry member, at least for several terms. He is in the praise team and sings in the seasonal choir. He does a number of things. He's uh, Professionally, he's an attorney and works in Orange Park. Um, not only is he a friend of mine, but it's a pleasure to hear from him because he's a man who seeks after God. And God has given him a gift for preaching. What is particularly appropriate this morning as we do this series on the heart of mission and look at personal evangelism is that he's not ordained. I think sometimes you listen to me with kind of a check because I'm a priest. Well, he's one of you and he's going to speak to you from God's word. I hope you'll listen and hear what God has to say to you through Sam. And I want to pray for him right now. Lord, thank you for my friend Sam. I thank you for his gift with words and his love for your word. I pray for your spirit now to anoint him, organize his thoughts, help us to receive what you have to say. Lord, if you don't speak through him, then it really doesn't matter what he says. Help us to have hearts to receive your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can you hear me? Good morning. That was pretty lame. Good morning. Much better. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at 11 o'clock who are lazily enjoying their coffee and bagel and reading the newspaper this morning while you all are up and at it, ready to worship the Lord first thing this morning. Well, well done. Although they did make me promise not to wear a tie in the act of solidarity, the more casual service they have at 11 o'clock. Um, our sermon today goes to the gospel reading that Mike just brought to you. So grab your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, God forgives you, and so do I, but it will be on page 878 of your pew Bible, 878 of your pew Bible, and the awesome thing about standing up here is I can tell if you're looking at your Bible while I'm preaching, so grab it if you would real quick, Luke chapter 19. Um, We are in this sermon series entitled The Heart of Mission, and I'm grateful and honored that, that Mike asked me to preach. It's, it's very humbling, I will tell you, to preach to your brothers and sisters who know your weaknesses, <laughs> who know when you've screwed up, who know that you're broken and a sinner. Um, and so maybe that kind of puts us all on an equal footing. So I, I, I pray and I hope that these words will, will come to you in the spirit in which they are received as, as one of you as we work in through God's message. Last week, Lenny um, brought a really incredible um, message focused on relational evangelism. The sum of that sermon was this, that the kingdom of God is found in relationships. That the kingdom of God is found in relationships. And the thing I want you to take from this sermon, from this parable, from our time together is that kingdom relationships require investment. Kingdom relationships require investment. One of the things that drives my daughter crazy is when we're having an argument, sometimes we'll be speaking past each other. I don't know if you have that experience in your life, especially with preteens, where we'll be saying the same words, but as we drill down into our let's call it a heated discussion sometimes, we'll find that we're using those same words with different meanings. And I find the word investment is one of those words. For some of us, it immediately brings us to the notion of finances. Um, Are you an investor? Do you do what Rusty Creighton does for a living and invest other people's money and try to get a good return? 
that's a perfectly legitimate use of the word investment, but it's not the way that investing is used in the context of this parable. The definition of investment in this context is this. Investing means to devote one's time, effort, or energy to a particular undertaking with the expectation of a worthwhile result. For purposes of kingdom work, in the context of the kingdom, to invest in the kingdom means to devote your, my, our, time, effort, or energy to a particular undertaking that God has called us to, and to do so with the expectation of a worthwhile result. Kingdom investment. Let's go to Luke 19. Beginning in uh, verse 11, Jesus gives this parable. For context, immediately preceding this is Luke's account of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You see that in verse 1 going through verse 10? Remember Lenny at our, at our, in his sermon last week talked about the wee little man Zacchaeus and how Jesus exemplified the idea of relational evangelism by calling this notorious sinner down from the tree and saying, I'm coming to dinner at your house today. And because of the relationship that was developed with Zacchaeus, his life was transformed. Repentance happened. The gospel broke in. So immediately on the heels of that, we get Luke's account of the parable of the ten minus. Now, context. This sounds a little bit unusual to us as we read the beginning of, of this um, account, beginning in verse 11, especially in verse 12, where, where Jesus talks about a noble man going into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. What does that mean? Well, think about what you know about the time of Christ um, and what, what was going on geopolitically at the time. This was the age of Rome, Pax Romana. Rome, all roads, all roads lead to Rome. But if you think about it, and just think, your, 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 your biblical history knows this. You have King Herod. You have kings in different regions who were allowed to serve under Rome. So what Jesus is describing here is a nobleman is leaving the area where he is and going, to, presumably, to Rome to receive authority to return with the kingship. He's leaving where he is, going somewhere else with the expectation that when he returns, he will no longer just be a nobleman, he will be a ruler. But he's not back yet. And so we see here in verse 13 on 878, the, 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 the parable goes by where the, he's, Jesus says, the nobleman calls 10 of his servants together and he gives those servants 10 minas. A mina is, is for lack of a better term, Think of um, uh, four months of uh, wages, for example. I don't know how much that would be in a given time, but a substantial amount of money. Um, and this, this 10 minus, con we presume, constitutes the, uh, the wealth, the operating capital of the nobleman. And since he's leaving where he is and going far away, he can't take all that with him. So he's leaving his resources, his capital, with his 10 most trusted servants saying, I'm going to be gone. I'm dividing this amongst each of you. Each of you gets a mina. Uh, each of you gets a tenth, a proportional amount of, of my capital. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to leave. Be a good steward of it while I'm gone. Then I come back. Now, 
What do we know about these servants? Not a whole lot, except some things that we can deduce later on. We'll get to that in just one second. We know there's a different relationship between the servants that are described in verse 13 and the citizens in verse 14. It's important. The nobleman goes away to the idea of coming back with a, with, with a kingship. But the, no, the citizens of the area with which he will presumably rule don't want to be ruled. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him, sent a delegation after him, presumably to Rome, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. There's a tension between what the nobleman desires and what the servants are trying to bring forth and the citizens in this story who don't want to be ruled who have a misconception of what the ruler is all about. The parable continues, and the nobleman returns in verse 15, having received the kingdom. He's achieved the purpose for which he went away, and now comes back, not just a nobleman, but a king. And he calls forth the ten servants who were entrusted with the capital of the kingdom, with the capital of the resources, and they come before him. We have three examples of those ten. Three of the ten of the stories are laid out in this parable. The first, in verse 16, came before him, and he says to the nobleman, now his Lord. Notice what he, now this word changes. He says, Lord, your mina, it's important, your resources, has made ten minas more. A 1,000% rate of return. Rusty, is that pretty good? That'd be pretty good. It's like a rusty Creighton investment right over there. A 1,000% rate of return. But look at what the the, the servant says. He didn't say, I did this. He has a right relationship and an understanding of what really caused the growth. Lord, your resources have brought this incredible return. And the Lord says to him, well done. Well done. The second servant then comes before him. And says, Lord, your resources, your mina, has made five minas. He only had a 500% rate of return. And the Lord says, well done. Well done. And then the third servant comes forward. Now let's get, the words matter here. So grab your Bible and let's see what he says. Verse 20, then the, the third servant comes before the Lord and says, Lord, here's your mina. Here's what you gave me. Here's, I give it back to you. It's yours. You're back. Here's yours. Which, by the way, um, I kept laid away in a handkerchief. But, but, but I did it because I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you. Because you're a severe man. You, you take what you don't deposit. You reap what you didn't sow. Lord, I didn't do what those guys did, but it's really not my fault. It's, it's your fault, kind of. If you were different, I would have done it. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And when I read this, I kind of shake a little bit. Because the reality of, of, of my life, and I presume probably a lot of our lives collectively, is that I'm much closer to this third servant than the first two. God has given me 
Just as he's given each of you an awful lot. Not just materially. Not just materially, but, but in the things that really matter. He's given me hope. He's given me a right perspective on life. He's given me truth, the ability to, to, to discern what he cares about and through that find joy. And he expects me to invest it in things that matter to him. But too often, I wrap it up in the handkerchief and, and put it aside. Maybe bring it to, with the church me when I come on Sunday and, and leave. What, what, what's going on here in this servant? A.W. Tozer has, has a great phrase that, I, that when, as soon as I heard it, when we did a discipleship group together a couple years ago, where he says, the motive is everything. The motive is everything. What is this servant's motive in saying what he's saying to his master? What is his motive? Is it because he really is afraid that his master is a severe man, that he takes what he doesn't deposit and reaps what he doesn't sow? Is it really because he's scared that he worships, not worship, that he serves a master who is so unjust? I submit to you the answer to that is no. In fact, what that is is what we often do in our lives, and it's an attempt to deflect blame and responsibility. Knowing that we've screwed up, instead of falling on our face and saying, God, I... I man, I've dropped the ball here. Lord, you are worthy of so much more. Please forgive me. What I do is what I often get mad at my daughter when she does and we're arguing. Um, yeah, I didn't do that, but, but it's really your fault. You know, I would have done my laundry if you had had reminded me. You know, I would have done my homework if you had gotten us home in time and hadn't had dinner so late. What, this, what the servant is saying is, Lord, I would have invested your money if you weren't so mean, if I wasn't scared of you. Is that really what's going on? Is it really what's going on? Or is it what the Lord in this parable ferrets out? He gets at what the real motive is. It's not, the motive here is not fear. The motive is that the reality is this servant just was indifferent. The master went away. And the servant was indifferent. The Lord in this parable, he would have been a great lawyer. Um, I'm envious. Because he did what a great lawyer would do on cross-examination, which isn't to say, you're lying. He, he, he gets to the heart of the issue. He says, well, that's interesting, because if you were so scared of me, young servant, I'm going to use your own words against you. If you were so scared of me, and if I'm so, so severe, then why didn't you take what I gave you and put it in the safest, most secure place you can. Why don't you take that money and put it in the bank? At least then I know it would have been safe. And I would have at least got a negligible rate of return. You didn't even do that. You left it in your house wrapped up in a handkerchief. Where thieves can come in and steal. You didn't even do that. The heart issue involved with this servant is not that he was scared of the Lord, it's that he was indifferent. Why was he indifferent? How could he have been indifferent when all the other servants who knew this Lord eagerly invested with such an incredible rate of return? It tells me a couple things about this servant that I think are applicable to us. Number one is that this servant did not truly know his master. 
Yes, he knew who he was. Yes, he had been, been doing things, obviously, to be put in a position where he was entrusted, but he did not know his master's heart. He did not know his master's heart. He did not have a true relationship with his master. The other thing we know or can deduce is that this servant was not in relationship with the other servants. He was not in relationship with his other servants. Think about it for a second. Ten servants are left in this country where the citizens are hostile to them. They don't want to be ruled. The nobleman's gone away. Who knows if he will return? And so it's really kind of an us against them sort of, sort of situation. And one can presume in this, in this context that the servants would rely on each other for encouragement, for accountability, and that when one's investments would, would blossom on behalf of the master, when that 1,000% return would come, they would rejoice together and say, I, I, I've been really fortunate. What about you? How are you? How are you? Do you think some, that the servant who just took his mina and left it in the handkerchief was part of those discussions? Was he in relationship with his brothers or sisters as they co-invested what God had given them? Or was that servant disconnected? Not just from his relationship with his master, but from his relationship with his co-servants, with the people with whom he served. Disconnectedness, not only from our relationship with the Lord, but from our relationships with each other, leads us to a place where we can very easily find ourselves outside the heart of mission that God has called us to. Well, so what? <laughs> it's a great story, it's a great parable, but, but what's, what's the context for us? Um, what does it mean? What's, what's the sin problem that this parable helps us as followers of Jesus to tackle? Well, the reality of it is, and we know this instinctively, that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where the kingdom is breaking through, but it's not quite here yet. Come, Jesus, come. We are in that context as followers of Jesus. We are his servants. And he has given us an awful lot and he expects us to utilize what he's given us in a manner that will grow his kingdom, that will address the brokenness that we see in our society, the broken relationships, the enslavement of sin, the, 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 the putting idols in place of our Lord. And the great news for the world is that Jesus has the ability and the desire to heal. Jesus has the power to heal, to transform, to forgive, to redeem that brokenness. And just like in the parable, he relies on his trusted servants, those who 
serve the king while he is away to do the work to you and to me. So, let me confess to you that the reality of it is um, on weeks when Mike hasn't asked me to preach and I'm not feeling that, that, that immediate weight of, gosh, I've got to get my life together because I want to sound like a hypocrite in front of my, my, my brothers and sisters when I'm preaching. The reality of it is I'll go through weeks a lot of time just kind of burn out. I've got a lot going on. Y'all have a lot going on. Um, whether it's raising kids, whether it's working, whether it's family drama, whether it's just trying to, to, you know, live, drive, and survive. Um, there's a lot going on in life. And the thought of adding to that just makes my shoulders sink a little bit. And I suspect y'all are probably in the same boat. We're so busy. But at the same time, we live in the most affluent society in the world, and the opportunities available to us are overwhelming. My wife has this phrase, she calls it FOMO, fear of missing out. She doesn't want to miss anything. And so we add more to our plate, more and more and more. We're so busy. We have so much stress. We feel it instinctively. Um, and I, I, I had this vision as I was reading this parable of God looking at that saying, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? You know, you, you cool with that, Sam? Um, how's that working out for you? Are you focusing, are you investing the limited amount of time that you have on this earth in things that will bring an eternal reward, in things that you know will bring joy? Or are you going to chase after the next adventure? Are you going to chase after the next thing? Are you willing to ask yourself the question? Am I willing to ask myself the question? Am I investing, Lord, what I have received from you in a way that makes you proud? Am I investing what I've received from you in a way that makes you proud? Because that's what the first two servants did. They invested what they received from the Lord, and they did it in a way that made the Lord proud. Now, Mike's talking about a capital campaign, and and, and, and the vestries put a lot of resources and, and prayer into this, and it is totally important. We're praying through it. We're asking God to reveal himself to us. But this sermon is not about your money. This sermon is not about your money. This sermon is about your heart. This sermon is about your heart. Are you investing what God has given you in a way that makes him proud? If the answer to that is, is the answer I would give, which is sometimes, um, let me challenge you and build on the sermon that Lenny gave you last week and take it a step more. The kingdom of God is about relationships. The kingdom of God is about relationships, but those relationships, kingdom relationships, require investment. And before you can invest anything, before you can give your time, your energy, your resources in the expectation of a worthwhile result, we have to know what to invest in. And look around you. Seriously, look around. Take, take a second. Turn your head to the left. Turn your head to the right. Y'all aren't cooperating. Head to the left. Head to the right. Look around. Front. You can do this. 
This is your investment fund. This is your investment fund. We're called together to be of one heart and one mind for mission. Are you investing in each other? Are we investing in each other? Or are we doing what we're so often guilty of doing and having superficial relationships? Where I see folks and, um, you know, say, how you doing? And we, know, and we know their kids' names. We see them on Sunday. And that person's kind of going through a rough time. Hope they're okay. That's not what the kingdom's about. God uses our relational investment in each other to let his kingdom break in. You can, Michael call it discipleship. You've heard Dan talk about it a lot. Um, discipleship is, is, a, is a, a word that kind of intimidates me a little bit, but what I do understand is investing in people I care about and doing it because Jesus loves me and he loves them. And he calls me to care about them and love them unconditionally, without pretense. So if this is resonating with you, I want to encourage you to maybe, you know, there's a, there's a note in your bulletin that says sermon notes. Um, sometimes it helps to write things down. I would encourage you during the morning service, there are people in your life that, that, that God is calling you to be involved with, to go deeper, to pursue him together pray for, to meet together with, to minister to. Write their name on that piece of paper as you pray through it today. If God brings a name to your mind, literally take a pen, it's in front of you, and write the name on a piece of paper. Stick it in your purse, stick it in your wallet, pray on it this week. This isn't, there is no limit to what God can do through his people when we allow him to use us for his purpose, when we invest in each other, when we invest in people, lives are transformed, God's kingdom breaks in, and awesome stuff can happen. We pray with me? Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Um, thank you for your word. God, we want to have lives that at the end of the day, when we look back, we can speak the words of the Apostle Paul from the passage that was read earlier. We can look back and see that our lives have been poured out, literally poured out, emptied as a drink offering to you. Lord, empower us to run the race, fight the fight, keep the faith in love and service of you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.